Section 81 of The Toilers of the Sea by Victor Hugo. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by John Greenman. Book Fourth The Pitfalls of the Obstacle. Chapter One A Man Who Is Hungry Is Not the Only Hungry One. When he awoke, he was hungry. The sea was growing calmer, but sufficient agitation lingered in the open ocean to render an immediate departure impossible. Moreover, the day was too far advanced. In order to reach Guernsey before midnight, with such a cargo as that carried by the paunch, it was necessary to start in the morning. Although pressed by hunger, Gilliatt began by stripping himself, the only means of getting warm. His garments were drenched by the storm, but the rain had washed out the salt water, which now rendered it possible to dry them. Gilliatt retained only his trousers, which he turned up to the knees. Here and there, on the projections of the rocks around him, he spread out his shirt, his pea-jacket, his tarpaulin, his leggings, and his sheepskin, fastening them down with stones. Then he bethought himself of eating. Gilliatt had recourse to his knife, which he took great pains to sharpen and to keep always in good condition, and he detached from the granite several rock-lice, of nearly the same species as the cloanis of the Mediterranean. As the reader knows, these are eaten alive, but after so many labors which had been so varied and so rough, it was a meager pittance. He had no more biscuit. As for water, he no longer lacked that. He was more than refreshed, he was inundated. He took advantage of the fact that the tide was ebbing to prowl among the rocks in search of crawfish. He had seen enough of them there to hope for a successful hunt, but he did not reflect that he could no longer cook anything. If he had taken the trouble to go to his storehouse, he would have found it broken in by the rain. His wood and coal were drenched, and of his stock of tow, which stood him instead of tinder, there was not a thread which was not wet. There was no means of lighting a fire. Moreover, the bellows were disorganized, the blower of the forge hearth was broken away, the storm had sacked the workshop. With the tools which had escaped injury, Gilliatt might, at a pinch, still work as a carpenter, not as a blacksmith. But Gilliatt was not thinking of his workshop for the time being. Drawn in another direction by his stomach, he had set out in search of his repast without further thought. He wandered not out in the direction of the gorge of the reef, but outside, among the breakers. It was in that direction that the Durand had struck on the rocks ten weeks before. For the search in which Gilliatt was engaged, the outside of the reef was better than the inside. Crabs have a habit of crawling out in the air at low water. They are fond of warming themselves in the sun. These deformed creatures love midday. Their exit from the water into the full light is a singular thing. Their swarms render one almost indignant. When one sees them with their awkward oblique gait crawl heavily from fold to fold up the lower stages of the rocks like the steps of a staircase, one is forced to confess that the ocean has its vermin. However, that day the hermit crabs and crawfish had hidden themselves. The tempest had thrust back these solitaries into their hiding-places, and they were not yet reassured. 
Gilead held his knife open in his hand, and from time to time tore off a shellfish from under the seaweed. He ate as he walked. He could not be far from the spot where Sieur Clubin had been lost. Just as Gilead was making up his mind to resign himself to sea urchins and sea chestnuts, a splash was made at his feet. A huge crab, frightened by his approach, had just dropped into the water. The crab did not sink so deeply that Gilead lost sight of it. Gilead set out on a run after the crab along the base of the reef. The crab sought to escape. Suddenly he was no longer in sight. The crab had just hidden in some crevice under the rock. Gilead clung to the projections of the rock and thrust forward his head to get a look under the overhanging cliff. There was, in fact, a cavity there. The crab must have taken refuge in it. It was something more than a crevice. It was a sort of porch. The sea entered beneath this porch, but was not deep. The bottom was visible, covered with stones. These stones were smooth and clothed with algae, which indicated that they were never dry. They resembled the tops of children's heads covered with green hair. Gilliatt took his knife in his teeth, climbed down with his hands and feet from the top of the cliff, and leapt into the water. It reached almost to his shoulders. He passed under the porch. He entered a much worn corridor in the form of a rude pointed arch overhead. The walls were smooth and polished. He no longer saw the crab. He kept his foothold and advanced through the diminishing light. He began to be unable to distinguish objects. After about fifteen paces the vault above him came to an end. He was out of the corridor. He had here more space and consequently more light, and besides the pupils of his eyes were now dilated. He saw with tolerable clearness. He had a surprise. He was just re-entering that strange cave which he had visited a month previously. Only he had returned to it by way of the sea. That arch which he had then seen submerged was the one through which he had just passed. It was accessible at certain low tides. His eyes became accustomed to the place. He saw better and better. He was astounded. He had found again that extraordinary palace of shadows, that vault, those pillars, those purple and blood-like stains, that jewel-like vegetation, and, at the end, that crypt, almost a sanctuary, and that stone which was almost an altar. He had not taken much notice of these details, but he carried the general effect in his mind, and he beheld it again. Opposite him, at a certain height in the cliff, he saw the crevice through which he had made his entrance on the first occasion, and which, from the point where he now stood, seemed inaccessible. He beheld again, near the pointed arch, those low and obscure grottoes, a sort of caverns within the cavern, which he had already observed from a distance. Now he was close to them. The one nearest to him was dry and easily accessible. Still nearer than that opening he noticed a horizontal fissure in the granite above the level of the water. The crab was probably there. He thrust in his hand as far as he could and began to grope in this hole of shadows. All at once he felt himself seized by the arm. What he felt at that moment was indescribable horror. Something thin, rough, flat, slimy, adhesive, 
and living had just wound itself round his bare arm in the dark. It crept up towards his breast. It was like the pressure of a leather thong and the thrust of a gimlet. In less than a second an indescribable spiral form had passed around his wrist and his elbow and reached to his shoulder. The point burrowed under his armpit. Gilead threw himself backward but could hardly move. He was as though nailed to the spot. With his left hand, which remained free, he took his knife, which he held between his teeth, and holding the knife with his hand, he braced himself against the rock in a desperate effort to withdraw his arm. He only succeeded in disturbing the ligature a little, which resumed its pressure. It was as supple as leather, as solid as steel, as cold as night. A second thong, narrow and pointed, issued from the crevice of the rock. It was like a tongue from the jaws of a monster. It licked Gilead's naked form in a terrible fashion, and suddenly stretching out, immensely long and thin, it applied itself to his skin and surrounded his whole body. At the same time unheard of suffering, which was comparable to nothing he had previously known, swelled Gilead's contracted muscles. He felt in his skin round and horrible perforations. It seemed to him that innumerable lips were fastened to his flesh and were seeking to drink his blood. A third thong undulated outside the rock, felt of Gilead, and lashed his sides like a cord. It fixed itself there. Anguish is mute when at its highest point. Gilead did not utter a cry. There was light enough for him to see the repulsive forms adhering to him. A fourth ligature, this one as swift as a dart, leapt towards his belly and rolled itself around there. Impossible either to tear or to cut away these shiny thongs, which adhered closely to Gilead's body and by a number of points. Each one of those points was the seat of frightful and peculiar pain. It was what would be experienced if one were being swallowed simultaneously by a throng of mouths which were too small. A fifth prolongation leapt from the hole, it superimposed itself upon the others and folded over Gilead's chest. Compression was added to horror. Gilead could hardly breathe. These thongs, pointed at their extremity, spread out gradually like the blades of swords towards the hilt. All five evidently belonged to the same center. They crept and crawled over Gilead. He felt these strange points of pressure which seemed to him to be mouths changing their places. Suddenly a large, round, flat, slimy mass emerged from the lower part of the crevice. It was the center. The five thongs were attached to it like spokes to a hub. On the opposite side of this foul disk could be distinguished the beginnings of three other tentacles, which remained under the slope of the rock. In the middle of this sliminess there were two eyes gazing. The eyes were fixed on Gilliatt. Gilead recognized the octopus, devilfish. End of chapter one. A man who is hungry is not the only hungry one.